Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Good morning. Um, it's an honor to come in front of all of you and teach this morning. Um, pray that our time together will be fruitful and edifying to us all. Um, but we need to hop right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and Raleigh took up my time on purpose, so thank you. Um, real quick, I want to take you guys on a jet tour through the first nine chapters of the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Raleigh did this about halfway to this point back in chapter 5 or 6, but really the first nine chapters culminate in chapter 10 before the author switches gears in chapter 11, as we'll see in a couple weeks. So to recap, there's no known author of the letter to the Hebrews besides the Holy Spirit. It's written to a group of Jewish Christians that we can gather by the word choice of the author in various places. And one thing that we can clearly see is that the theme of the letter to the Hebrews is the supremacy and the superiority of Christ. So this morning I want to highlight and illuminate some ways in which the author has spoken of this through the first nine chapters. And this is a cursory glance. There's plenty more that I'll miss, but um, I'm going to hit a bunch of them. If you're a note taker, don't try to keep up because I'm going to lose you. So the author writes to us that Christ is supreme by being the rightful heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, the great sustainer of the universe by the word of his power, the perfect purifier of sins and regenerate hearts, the perfect son under authority seated at the right hand of God, much superior to all the angels. He's the lone source of salvation. He's greater than Moses. He is rest. He is our great high priest. He's the forerunner on our behalf. He's the indestructible life on the basis of his deity. He's the better hope than the law and the guarantor of a better covenant. He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has superior blood, and he is the true acceptable payment for sins. So starting with chapter 5, we saw Christ introduced as the great high priest. Chapter 9 introduced him as the mediator of the new and better covenant. And now chapter 10 reveals in true form that he is the superior sacrifice. I want to give you guys an outline, and this is in your handout to really break up this passage. Verses 1 through 6 detail the inadequacy of animal sacrifice to take away sins. Verses 5 through 9 detail the superior and adequate body prepared and offered to take away sins. That's not a typo. Those two do overlap, and you'll see. Verses 10 through 18 detail the results and ramifications of the one true offering. So let's start with the first item, the inadequacy of animal sacrifice to take away sins. We're going to look at three reasons why that is such. Your first reason is that there's a permanent veil that remained between God and the people. A permanent veil remained between God and the people. Let's take a look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In chapter 9, we saw how the Levitical priestly system didn't bring about an intimacy with the Father. There was perpetual separation between God and his people. 
In chapter 9, verse 8, the author detailed the sacrificial ceremony of the priests and states, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. This just points to the fact that no matter how many sacrifices were made to atone for the people, they never were brought into a full, intimate relationship with God because all they did was point to the one true sacrifice being Jesus Christ. Jesus himself states this in John fourteen six. This will be familiar to many of you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It does not say sacrifices are the way, the truth, and the life. Back to Hebrews verse 1. The author uses the imagery of a shadow. It was just a picture representative of the real thing. Further on, it says that these sacrifices were continually offered every year. So it was like you were stacking up a bunch of shadows on top of each other, which never end up manifesting themselves into a tangible thing. They are still a shadow. Through the rest of our time, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into how I study my Bible. Um, as Riley mentioned, I lead the young adult group here, and many of them also study their Bibles this way. And part of that involves doing word studies. That word shadow used here in, the, in uh, verse 1, in the Greek it is skia, S-K-I-A, skia. And we actually discussed this word in our study in Galatians this year, and it led us, the word study did, to Colossians 2.17. Paul states, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Prior to this statement, Paul is discussing the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system of the rituals that were practiced by the Jews. These were things that the Jews did not want to let go of. So Paul pointed out in many of his letters, many times the Jews were the audience of his letters, saying how these things have passed away and the new truly has come. There at the end, he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. Notice how there was no substance in the shadows referenced here in Hebrews 10, verse 1. So Christ is the substance that all those shadows, though, have been pointing to in the Old Covenant. Reason number two, that animal sacrifices are inadequate. They served as a guilt reminder of one's unregenerate state. They served as a guilt reminder of one's unregenerate state. One of the joys in the Christian life is that we no longer fear eternal punishment and separation from God. We still maintain a reverent fear because God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and maintains the universe in the palm of his hand. But attaining an assurance of one's salvation because of the blood of Jesus is one of the beauties of the Christian life. However, the Jews, as we'll see, never got to experience that joy. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, states, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So if the sacrifices worked, would they have ceased to be offered week after week and year after year? Yeah. If on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice cleansed the whole nation once and for all, would they continually sacrifice? No, they wouldn't. But it did not accomplish its task. Instead, it made matters worse in the minds of the people. We've talked about this several times here, and specifically last week, 
um, about the conscience. And I want to explain it to you in biblical terms real quick. The conscience is an internal warning system. It's been blessed to all people. This is not specific to believers. It's a common grace that God has provided. But Romans 2.15 speaks on the conscience. Paul writes, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the conscience either accuses or excuses one of their guilt. But not everybody has that same internal warning system, same conscience. And that's all brought about by the belief system in that individual. If one has a faulty belief system, their conscience is going to excuse them of sin that might not be excused by another. For instance, Adolf Hitler and the slaughter of six million Jews. That worked in his mind because he had a faulty belief system that would not accuse him of his sin. The guys that hijacked the planes on 9-11, that worked in their mind because their conscience excused them of their sin. So coming back to Hebrews 10, the Jews felt the weight of their guilt all the time because they recognized their sacrifices were not bringing about a full atonement of their sins once and for all, or else they wouldn't have to bring another animal next week to slaughter. The last one would have covered it. They lived in perpetual fear because they were well aware of their separation from God and their unregenerate state before God. They lived with a constant reminder that the guilt was within them. And lastly, reason number three, that animal sacrifices were inadequate. They did not remove sins. They didn't remove sins. And this is the kicker. This is what they all wanted. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Suffice it to say, not a single animal sacrifice in all of history has ever removed one sin. It's impossible. So, your mind naturally goes, if it never removes sins, why would you do it? Why did God command it? And why did God create a revolving door system that had no forgiving quality to it and let them do it for years and years. Well, the sacrifices, as we've seen, are a representation, a shadow of the true things to come. The true thing, excuse me. But more than that, they were a covering of sin and not a full removal. Imagine your two-year-old dumps a cup of Hawaiian punch or grape juice on your brand-new white carpet. You have two options. Either you replace it, or you get as much out, which you're not going to get all of it out, and you grab a rug and you cover it up. So when guests come over, they don't see the mess. But you know it's there. Their repeated sacrifices acted as a rug, covering the mess being their sin. All the sacrifices did was keep people in an external, limited relationship with God. And that's the emphasis on external. But as we stated already, the veil was in between them and God. So nothing about the animal sacrifices brought about an internal transformation that they were seeking. But still, God commanded sacrifices to be done. We're going to fill in this idea more. Verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So what is the author saying here? 
says that God takes no pleasure in offerings. But he commanded them, right? Let's take a few pla- let's take a look at a few places in scripture and we'll fill in this idea. You don't need to turn there. Most of it's going to be on uh, the screen. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, not the one who became Paul, was commanded by God to wipe out the Amalekites, which were a tribe. God basically said, commit genocide of this entire people because they are coming after my people. Wanted to wipe them from the face of the earth. So God spoke through Samuel and said, devote them to destruction, kill everything, and take no spoils. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 9 states, But Saul and the people spared Agag. Agag was their leader. And the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul was disobedient to God's command. Further on in verse 21, Saul is pleading to Samuel, who's acting as liaison with God. Saul says, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. In verse 22, Samuel responds. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Further on in verse 23, Samuel informs Saul that God has rejected him and all of his descendants from ever reaching the throne and becoming king of Israel. So to answer the question of why would God command sacrifices even though they did not remove sins? He wanted them to be done out of an obedient heart. The system was perfect when he created it. And like all things, we as humans ruined it. He wanted them to have reverence to what it actually pointed to. Instead, like Saul, the Jews immediately turned it into a ritual, a ceremony, checking an item off their weekly list. They never detached it from the ceremonial law, nor recognized its foretelling of the coming Messiah. Further commentary, straight from the mouth of God in Isaiah 111. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of in the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. What does he want? He craves our obedience. He craves our obedience. Moving on, we're going to take a look at the superior and adequate body that has been prepared and offered to take away sins. Going back to verse 5, here's the overlap. I'll reread through verse 9. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Verses 5 and 6 are an incredibly important piece of scripture, and we can't skip over it. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Raleigh read this during announcements. Now, this section of scripture in Psalms was written by David. However, what this truly is, this passage, is, 
This is pre-incarnate conversation between Jesus and the Father. Pre-incarnate conversation between Jesus and the Father. So if you need a proof of his, his existence prior to his incarnation, there it is. And we don't have as much time as I'd like to go through all of that. Leave a note to research that for yourself. It's deep. It's eye-opening. But if you needed proof, look no further. Verses 8 and 9 are yet again quoted from Psalms 40, 6 through 8, but in different form. It ends, however, with a very powerful statement. And that's where we'll see the first of five reasons why the sacrifice of Christ is superior and adequate. The first reason, it did away with the old covenant. It did away with the old covenant. The end of verse 9, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Here, the first is the sacrificial system. He does away with it. And as we've seen so many times, Christ came to fulfill the law. You know this well, Matthew five seventeen, straight from the lips of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law pointed to him the whole time. We're going to look at a passage later that points directly to him, but Jesus is everywhere on the pages of the Old Testament. Reason number two, why he's superior and adequate. It took one sacrifice. It took one sacrifice. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're going to do another quick word study here. It's actually not going to be as quick, but all things considered, it's quick. The word sanctified, it's a very interesting word. The word for sanctified in the Greek is hagios. All of this is going to be up here so you can follow along with me. Hagios is the root word, and it's an adjective used to describe someone who is a saint or a holy one. It's also used four times in scripture to refer to Jesus as the holy one, capital H, capital O. Here in verse 10, however, the word is hagiazo, which is a verb coming from the word hagios. means one who's been set apart or made holy. In many places in scripture, this word is used in tandem or in uh, place, it's interchanged with salvation, righteousness, and holiness to emphasize the holy nature of someone who has true salvation. However, the point here is that the will or the testament that we talked about in chapter 9 was satisfied by the body of Jesus Christ and it only took one time. And we'll come back to that single sacrifice in a few minutes. But I do want to mention a very important thing that's here that we probably wouldn't see from a 30,000 foot view of this verse. The composition there in the middle. We have been sanctified. Now stick with me. I don't want to lose you. I'm going to go slow through this. The phrase there, we have been sanctified in the Greek, is aimi uh, hagiazo. Aimi hagiazo. Now, that is what's known as a perfect participle with a finite verb. Got it? <laughs> perfect participle with a finite verb. So let me explain. What happens when you have a perfect participle with a finite verb? The perfect participle conveys permanence of that verb. So in this case, the phrase, we have been sanctified, literally reads, 
we have been permanently sanctified. To which we already learned that means one who has salvation or who has been made holy. So, in essence, what does that mean? It means your salvation is permanent. It cannot be lost. You cannot lose your salvation. Reason number three, the sacrifice of Christ is superior and adequate. It removed sins. It removed sins. The writer here in verse four told us that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And here, we see that it is only possible by his blood. Verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 11 and 12, pay attention to this. They are comparing contrasting one another. There's a series of them in here. Follow along as I do this. Verse 11 compares every priest to Christ in verse 12. And the writer of Hebrews has commented much on this, labeling Christ as the great high priest. Verse 11 compares stands to sat down at the right hand of God in verse 12. And we see that the priest doesn't sit down because his work is never finished. However, Christ as the great high priest sits down because his work is done. Verse 11 compares daily to for all time in verse 12. Verse 11 compares offering repeatedly the same sacrifices to a single sacrifice in verse 12. I told you we'd come back to that single sacrifice. Raleigh had mentioned it last week, but I wanted to emphasize this and mention it again. In a Catholic mass, what do we see? There's a literal re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ every week, year after year. Sometimes in a mass happens multiple times in one mass. They are re-crucifying him over and over again. There's a reason that this cross right here is just a cross. The crucifix has Jesus hanging there on the cross because he is eternally taking the punishment for our sins daily right now in their view. Hebrews 9, chapter 25 and 26. Chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. We went over this last week. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here we see that it took one sacrifice. He's not continually suffering for our sins. He paid for it once. Catholic Mass is unbiblical, and yet we have so many friends that need to hear this truth. Verse 11 compares, back to our comparison and contrasting. Verse 11 compares which can never take away sins to four sins in verse 12. For all the time that was spent making those sacrifices to the Lord, the one-time sacrifice of Christ did for an eternity what an eternity of the other animal sacrifices never could. And what a delight that should be to us as believers. 
Reason number four that the, Christ, that the sacrifice of Christ is superior and adequate. He wins. He wins. I'm going to back up and read all of 12 again through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctified being that same word, hagiato. In verse 13, the reference to making a footstool for, for his enemies comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, which looks forward to the day when Christ returns and is recognized by the, as king by all nations, proclaiming he is Lord and realizing that they are subject to him. And what a day that will be. As Hebrews 9.28 mentioned, Raleigh put some emphasis at the end of his message last week, points out those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are eagerly waiting for him in his return. Verse 14 reinforced the soul offering, the single sacrifice, and the sufficient sacrifice. Lastly, reason number five, that the sacrifice of Christ is superior and adequate. There is full and perfect forgiveness. There's full and perfect forgiveness. In verses 15 through 17, the writer here, for the second time in this letter, has referenced, quoted, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I won't read that, but there is a full quotation in chapter 8 that the, that the author has already used. In Jeremiah 31, in those three, four verses, 31 through 34, He's talking about the new covenant that is to come. So let me summarize this for you quickly, get a picture of this. Jeremiah, there as we see in verse 15 that, he, that the writer of Hebrews quotes from, used the Holy Spirit as the authority behind his words. Verse 15 identifies the Holy Spirit as bearing witness to these words. So the writer of Hebrews is putting the Jews in a pickle. Did the Jews believe in the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Yes, they did. Did they also believe Jeremiah? Absolutely. They revered him. So both Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit are telling you, the Jews, to cut it out with the sacrifices. The new covenant has come. And it's been fulfilled by the new so for you to accept that Christ is Messiah and Lord, you're following the words of both Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit. However, if you don't, you make them both a liar. And to the Jews, that's an awful place to be in. They loved Jeremiah. They believed in the Holy Spirit. It's an awful position for them to be in. The section here at the end Verse 18, it ends with a beautiful reminder to the Christian. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any suffering for sin. It's over. And he's won. As we wrap up, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture, one that elevates Jesus in a masterful way. And that passage is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. While you're turning there, I want to give you some background information on this passage. The book of Isaiah was written by a prophet of the Lord named Isaiah. In its construction with our human-added 
chapter and verse numbers, it culminated into a 66-chapter work, which is synonymous with the 66 books of the Bible. Furthermore, Isaiah is split into two sections, the first 39 and the latter 27, just like the Bible is split into 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. The first 39 are written of the Assyrian captivity of the Jews, to which Isaiah had warned them would happen because of their rebellion against God. The last 27 detail the, Assyri- the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, to which Isaiah had also told them would happen. Now contained in the latter 27 are what's known as the four servant songs. These four servant songs are up on the screen for you. I want to encourage you to read the first three, but we're only going to look at the fourth one, which stands tall above the others. Now, as I mentioned, we, in our wisdom, added chapter and verse numbers to make the Bible more consumable and shareable and teachable to the masses. However, in our infinite wisdom, it appears that we split up this fourth song for absolutely no reason. I have not figured out a reason. I was researching it all week, did not find why. This song actually starts, as you see, in chapter 52, verse 13. And when I say this is a song, it is a literal song. There are five three-verse stanzas to this song, which you will probably see broken up in some readable format in your own Bible. Now, many times in our Sunday services, we've referenced Isaiah 53, and last week, Raleigh plucked out one section of the song last, uh, to read, but I want to read this in its entirety. Now, as I read this, it's long. Think about who the subject of the passage is. Feel the weight of the words. Take note of the references to which you're familiar because this passage is all over the New Testament. Follow along as I read Isaiah 53, which actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What do you see when you read this? More importantly, who? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Of course it is. It's Jesus. Now, the one major detail I left out of my introduction. This was written 700 years before Christ ever came. And yet, Isaiah, through God, understood that the coming Messiah would be like a root out of dry ground. He would be despised and rejected. He would carry our sorrows and would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be silent before his executioners. He would be with a rich man in his death. Think about that, the specificity of this text. He'd be with a rich man in his death, referring to Joseph of Arimathea. So specific. He knew that the Lord would be pleased to crush him, yet that out of that servant's anguish, many would be accounted righteous because he bore the sin of many and makes intercession as the great high priest for transgressors. The servant of Isaiah 53 is the prepared body. The servant of Isaiah 53 is the one true offering. And the servant of Isaiah 53 is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I want to leave you with a command. Know all of Scripture. Know all of Scripture. To this day, the passage we just read from Isaiah 53 is still denied by those of the Jewish faith to be about Christ. They don't believe it. When they read the Haftarah in synagogues around the world, year after year, they read up to Isaiah 52, verse 12, and then they skip to Isaiah 54. It is what's known as the forbidden chapter because it so clearly points to Jesus as the Messiah. So it's imperative that we know the entirety of Scripture. Jesus said himself, John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Jews had Isaiah 53 all along. They knew it. The truth was there the whole time. But it was pointing to him. Here we practice what's called expository preaching, which gives us the opportunity to go verse by verse straight through the Bible, not skip anything. We don't have the pleasure of picking and choosing and plucking verses out of context from Scripture. I want to leave you with two illustrations of what happens when you do that, when you don't know all of Scripture and when you don't rely on the veracity of it. There's a tale of a church in England hundreds of years ago that had an arch 
And as you walked up to the front doors of the church, you passed underneath this arch, engraved in the arch. We preach Christ crucified. In the beginning, the teachers that were established preached Christ crucified. They preached his resurrection. They preached about Jesus. But as time went on, new teachers came in and the old ones passed and they brought in their own ideologies. They began to add and subtract to their doctrine and their long-standing Christological stance. And as time went on, the unmanicured vines crept up the side of the arch till it covered the last word. It said, we preach Christ. As more time passed, the people inside the church began to complain, why limit ourselves to Christ? Why, why do we have to stop there? And so what did they do? They added. They began to preach about social issues and politics, science and philosophy. The vine on the arch grew until it covered, and all it said was, we preach. Two weeks ago, I spent a week in Washington, D.C. I went to visit some friends and family and visited a church. And before Wednesday night Bible study, I got dinner with a friend, and we parked in front of a church. And it was Capitol Hill United Methodist Church. On the front, much like that description I just gave you, there were windows above the front doors into the building. And in the right window was a poster painted taped to the back of the window that read, Black Lives Matter. And underneath the window was a flag that was erected in a holder coming out the building, and it was the Black Lives Matter flag hung on the front door of the church. In the window next to it was another poster that said something to the effect of, come one, come all, or come as you are. Rainbows painted all over the poster. And in the flag holder underneath that window was yet another flag, and it was the pride flag. To the left of that was yet another flag. That was the pride flag with added symbols and lines and all sorts of other things to hit all the letters in the acronym. In the grass on the front entrance surrounding the front door were those yard signs like we put for voting for someone pro-abortion and anti-Supreme Court rhetoric on the front lawn of the church. Now this shouldn't surprise any of you, despite how disappointing it is. Almost every Christian denomination is split in the last couple hundred years over issues that arise when the individuals in the pulpit neglect to preach Christ and him crucified. And they refuse to stand firm in the faith as Kyle preached on a couple months ago. They no longer know scripture. They no longer care about the scripture. And most importantly, and worst of all, they no longer fear God. They fear the reaction of man and cave to social pressure. And in doing so, they remove the gospel from their teaching. So again, know all of scripture. It is here for our benefit. Know it. Read it. Live in it. Know all of Scripture. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It's beautiful. It's true. 
and it's living. And within it is true freedom in Christ, bought with his blood, the one true sacrifice. And with that once-for-all sacrifice, he won. He won. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do not deserve the blessings and the joy in this life that we can attain through a relationship with you. You've given us a way to come to you that we do not deserve, paid by the price of your son's life to which he did not deserve. Lord, the adequacy of your son to pay for the sins is stark and it's clear from your word. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the truth and the veracity of it. We thank you that it can point us to you from beginning to end. Lord, I thank you for the gathering of the saints. I thank you for this church. Thank you for the body of believers here. I pray that you'll instill in us all a desire to study your word, a desire to know you more, a desire to know all of scripture so that we may be in more perfect communion with you until the end of our days. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.